So my bubble has been popped. (laughs) Everything I have been told about moving up in corporate and in your career, you have to move fast. You have to hustle and grind. You have to work all kinds of hours and work really fast. And you know, that works for a while, but as a few gray hairs come on my head and I'm getting a little bit older, you know, slowing down is just fine. And you know, this is a bit of wisdom that people who are still early and mid-career, yes, you got to work hard and do the work, but you might want to take some advice from a person in your future. Slow down a little bit because you know what? Recently, I was coached, Deb, you have to give yourself more air. You need to slow down. You don't need to fill your plate with so much activity. And this is a lesson for leaders as well. Because if you go too fast and too hard, you're going to miss something. You need the time and space to listen and absorb. And if you know me, I'm a fast talker. I'm from the East Coast and I can talk really fast. But I have learned that if you talk too fast, the human brain cannot consume all that I have to share. So for the podcast, you will notice I speak much more slower and deliberately. And this is also the advice from my guest, Tavis, who talks about we need to slow down. Only then can people relate to you, understand you, and really, really absorb your insights, your message, and your influence. A key message for leaders. So get ready. An amazing conversation come up. Let's just listen to a little bit of a sound bite. And I thank you for continuing to join the Drop-In CEO podcast. Take care. As all of us are really addicted to what we are good at, we're also really allergic to what we're not good at because it's a source of shame. It's a source of uncertainty. It's a source of not knowing. And it's like being the kid on the playground and not knowing how to play the game, right? We all know how to interact. We know how to listen. But do we actually apply these abilities? So like right now, you and I are really hearing each other, right? Kind of like the reason I put pauses in my book. We all know how to read. Do we really know how to apply what we are reading, right? Do we really know how to absorb what we are reading? And that's why I put the pauses in. So it's the same thing. Simply slow down and start to pay attention. Your brain is an absorbent sponge. But guess what? You got to slow down to let that happen. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, my name is Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I am grateful you've joined us for another week of an amazing guest, an amazing conversation, and you are going to glean such insights and inspiration. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, tell others so we can continue to bring you great programming. And this week, I am honored to have an amazing guest, 
Tevis Trower. She is the founder and CEO of Balanced Integration and the author of The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success, knows that building a great organization begins with cultivating true greatness from the very top. Tevis is a pioneer in optimizing corporate cultures and has been heralded as corporate mindfulness guru for the new millennium. And she has coached high performers and top executives for powerful organizations ranging from Disney to KKR in leveraging their most precious asset, their humanity. Tevis, welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to be here, Deb. Thank you for having me. So this is going to be a fantastic interview. When we first met, there was just such energy and such alignment between our brands. You know, we can coach amazing leaders on how to do their job, give them certificates, mentor them, etc. But there is so much personal work that has to be done for which that I really align with your work and also focusing on high performers because my book, The CEO's Compass, getting off track. Sometimes these high performers get frustrated and lose their confidence because they've been high performers and now they're off track and they don't know what's happened. They need somebody like Tevis or myself to get them back on. So Tevis, I would love for you to share with our listeners about yourself personally, your journey and the work that you're doing now. Oh, wow. Well, I was fortunate enough to be born to a not corporate family. No one in my family had ever worked in corporate America. So my dad was a Montessori teacher. So I kind of came into this with the hippie perspective on life and a real appreciation for learning social currency and kind of the normative impact of structures, right? Which is basically the formula of being an org nerd as an adult, right? You love learning. You look at social structures, right? And you look at what is normative. And so I grew up with a real appreciation for that kind of mindset. I did get an MBA that was global. So I spent some time in Brazil working for GM and made my way through corporate America, always with this view, always with this filter, like what is really happening here, right? What What is happening in leadership? What is happening throughout the culture? The old adage, right? I think it comes from the Chinese and it's called with a blessing and a curse. May you live in interesting times. I mean, all of us, I think, are living in interesting times. And really, this um, century has been just so rife because of the pace of change for watching and learning from what are our cultures? What are our leaders doing? What do we bring to the table in every engagement? And how does that become almost an invisible current that we're all swimming through? And so, If you want my two-second background on my life, that's it. Hippie girl grows up with a lot of curiosity, ends up in corporate America. I speak three languages. I've worked for a ton of uh, Fortune 500s as well as um, startups and professional services. And I really love work. I love work as a form of self-expression. I love it as a form of engagement. So yeah, does that give you enough to to dive in with, Deb? (laughs) Well, absolutely. So first of all, you know, you are a real individual. Yes, you're quite accomplished in your career. You've written a book and you're an amazing speaker. But I think what it is, is that you lead with humanity first. And I think we have the pyramid of how we go through our corporate lives, or even if you happen to be fortunate to have your own business or consulting, sometimes we think it is simply the performance metrics, the KPIs, the bottom line, the top line growth. And yes, that's easy to measure. 
and judge people. But when we lead from a place of, you know, really the top of the pyramid really should be the humanity, the humans, the people in your organization, and what are their capabilities and measuring those leading indicators, the study of the human and the interaction with the work that we're doing is the higher thing that we should be going after, measuring that, nurturing that, because humans still run the world. It's not the equipment. It's not all the processes. We're the ones that interface that we have to hone and develop. And so I'd love to continue with this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I think so cool about acknowledging the Maslow's hierarchy and a lot of other hierarchies um, say much the same is that pretty much if you're privileged enough to be hearing this, this podcast, chances are you've got your basic needs addressed, right? You've got your shelter, you've got food, right? You've got a modicum of safety. I mean, that's an existential question. Are any of us safe right now? But anyway, we won't go there. You've got sex, you've got community, you've got all the things that, that a human being needs, you know, to thrive. And When we look at corporate populations and we look at corporations as a collective of human beings, we really have to ask ourselves, okay, so if those needs are basically taken care of, then what is the differentiating factor, right? What is the special sauce, right? What is the magic? And the magic really is that that humanity piece. And what I think is so funny, Deb, and I know you hear this all the time, right? I know you hear this all the time, is they call it soft stuff, Oh, that's the soft stuff, right? And what's interesting is when you have really worked on soft stuff, whether it's behind a closed door in a one-on-one session with a coach or in a group learning offsite or some other kind of immersive experience, all of us go, holy crap, this is really hard. It is so hard. And then when the high performer no longer performs, we scratch our head and say, well, I guess they're at the top of their game. And then we lose these high performers to mediocrity or they leave or move or we move them out of the organization. But think about if we just took a little bit of time, not only with our high performers, but what about the people that are heads down doing the work that needs to get done? And even those poor performers, have we spent enough time understanding what their true gifts are? And have we mentored, coached the hard skills and the soft skills. (laughs) I'm curious. I always challenge that. Have we really done enough to serve the people? I think that's a really good question. And I think that specifically in this moment of the great resignation, everyone reevaluating priorities, there's a fabulous, fabulous um, article in the New York Times about how the contract of work has really shifted. Mm-hmm. Right. And the assumptions around what is work um, has really shifted. Surprising no one. I mean, all of us are living and it. it's not like we needed an article to tell us that. But I think when you kind of underscore, have we really done enough? Yeah. Here's what I think is really fascinating. Oftentimes we're doing all these programs and all these initiatives throughout the organization to help, right? And whether it's a Band-Aid or it's really impactful, there's money and resources being thrown at the problem. What I think is interesting is how oftentimes not any or not much or there's not a lot being done with leadership, right? It's kind of assumed that if you're at the top of the pile, You've got it all, right? You've really figured it out. You've you've got your work life stuff sorted. You have some kind of a self mastery practice or some kind of something to keep your 
head straight. But but what I think is really interesting is we all know the fish rots from the top. So I have never heard that, but you know what? If we don't take care of that, I mean, I I remember God, there's so much in that. I remember working with a senior leader. We're kind of like uh, at the same level, and they were new to their role. We were just having our initial one to one, and one of the things they said was, "I'm having a hard time reaching and connecting and knowing how I can help the plant managers." I mean, this is a senior leader. They're the VP of a major organization, and they have to have the skills in order to have the communication, the connection, and the influence. And they're talking to me in confidence. And again, the name's not important. I don't know how to connect. Wow. To admit that, that's a good thing. Some people can't even admit it because they just say, oh, they're just difficult. They're not willing to listen to change or "Ah, I don't have time for it, making excuses when it's an undeveloped skill. Or "Ah, they should be grateful to have a job. Just before I go into the details of your book, again, Tevis's book is The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. That sounds like it promises everything that I've ever looked for. But I'm curious, before somebody picks up that book, even though it looks like it promises success and transformational change, where does the individual have to be in order to receive and acknowledge and leverage that resource to the maximum? Wow, is that a cool question. I think a couple things. It's funny because when I first circulated the drafts of this book to a number of CEOs, really high performers across various walks of life. And one of them came back to me and said, well, Tevis, this is really just for the 1%. And I looked at her and I was like, oh, no, not at all. Because in many ways, I watched how I based the book on my experience coaching high performers and in those conversations, diving into what challenges they were facing in building fulfillment and self-awareness into their lives, right? Because we are high performers, so much of what we curate ourselves into is based on what we think the world expects, right? And that is a sure recipe to lose yourself. So in this conversation with this um, CEO, I said, it's so funny that, that you saw it that way because other people might say the opposite, that this book could serve anyone because all of us can hit that point, kind of like the David Byrne song, right? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife, right? That we've checked every box that we thought was going to make us quote unquote happy or make us feel valid or make us feel successful or somehow I can finally rest, Right. All of us, and whether you're an actor, whether you're a CEO, no matter what your field of excellence is, if excellence is your goal, it's a never-ending goal. And so this book, the place that someone has to be in to pick up this book and really get it is go, yeah, I've checked so many boxes and I keep chasing this imaginary carrot. Beautiful. Okay, so for listeners out there, you better be ready. You better be able to ask the question, are you happy or not? And again, this is a bit of a personal development uh, book. And if you were done with this conversation, please, please, please check out our work. Check out the book. It's amazing. Before we go deep into some of the great insights that you have in the book, I noticed you really go to start with a place. You have a, a beautiful symbol on the cover of the book. 
the Mandela of creation. So it's very soulful and a lot of meaning there. And I also noticed throughout the book, it's peppered with some some meditative-like passages to kind of ground you. Pause the book, because I noticed you talk to the person and say, wait a second, pause. Let's, let's have a reflective moment. Let's, where are you? Breathe. Think about where you are. Are you ready? Etc. I'm just curious why, again, you chose the symbol first. And then second, why do you pause periodically throughout the book to get the person grounded as you go through then the technical pieces to help them get success? Well, I chose the symbol for a couple of reasons. For one thing, if you've studied life systems, almost, ev- well, every life system is an expression of expansion and contraction, right? And every ecosystem is a dance of energies, right? If you think about any kind of ecosystem, any kind of closed or open ecosystem, it's always exchange of energies, right? So think about think about a kaleidoscope, right? Because that's basically what a mandala is. It's a kaleidoscope that's been drawn, or you could say a kaleidoscope is a mandala that's been put into 3D form and made shiftable. So we get so locked into our lives that we forget that we still have freedom, right? We forget that these pieces are still movable. We get so locked into our identities. We get so locked into how I do things. This is who I am. Well, I'm not that. I'm this and I like that and I don't like this. And a lot of times, so many of our assertions and convictions about even how life is, well, that's not how life works. Well, this is just business, right? All these hardbound convictions really become a cage. And what I love about the mandala of creation And I love about any expression of evolution and transformation that things are always in a transformational state. Like even if you're dead, your body is in a transformational state because it's going to decay, become part of the earth and be incorporated into something else, right? So I wanted to use a symbol and a pearl was just too trite. (laughs) I wanted to use a symbol to really remind people whether you're aware of what the symbol means or not, it still has impact. I want to remind people, just like the person in the Monty Python film, The Holy Grail, right? They're picking up the the old guy and they're throwing him on the pile to haul him off to, to, to the whatever the morgue or wherever people go to die and he's like i'm i'm not (laughs) dead yet i feel like dancing right i i mean how much can we give ourselves freedom to not be fully cooked yet how much can we give us especially if we're experts and really highly accomplished how much can we still be a work in progress because when you give yourself that kind of permission oh then you are boundless in your possibility but the minute that you have self-assigned some kind of cage, I don't know how compelling that sounds to you, but to me, it sounds like why even bother really pushing, I mean, for more money, right? For a bigger title. And none of that stuff, once you've had a couple of titles and a couple of raises, you start to realize it's kind of like the lottery effects. Like, like they say that that <laughs> the happiness bump on winning the lottery is is like less than a year. <laughs> so I get so many of these things, and I would love to pick things apart. But I think what I want to do is start bringing it back in a little bit. To you've had the good fortune of working with some amazing high performers in some organizations. You've learned from them. That is the source material for your work as well as your own insights. 
but let's make it real. Let's think about somebody you have had to work with that maybe was very stuck, maybe had a negative mindset, was about to maybe get fired because they just couldn't get out of their own way. I'd love to know where your expertise and that person being open to evolve had made a major transformation. And what was that impact? That's such a beautiful question. Do you know there was a, I'm going to combine some answers here because you also asked me about the power of pausing. There was a guy I was coaching at a major, huge financial services slash media company. You know, this was a guy who I'd say probably two notches below the C-suite and a hybrid client facing product kind of role, which is always tough, right? Because you have to process in two different ways when you're in those roles. You know, he had really skyrocketed. He was probably in his mid-50s, had adult kids, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was in trouble. And he was in trouble because over the decades of doing things the way we've always done them and being rewarded for them, even when they may or may not have been the best way to do something, right? We get really hard bound in our assumptions about how to get things done. And what was interesting, and I'll tell you his name because it's a common name. His name was Charles. It was interesting in working with Charles because when I would ask him if he ever observes his interactions actively, he said no. Like he didn't actively observe how he treated others or how they responded to him because he he had he had risen quickly and he felt every bit of his authority and what was really 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 fascinating about charles was as all of us become addicted to what we are good at we also become allergic to what we are not good at hmm. let's sit there a minute say that again as all of us are really addicted to what we are good at we're also really allergic to what we're not good at because it's a source of shame. It's a source of uncertainty. It's a source of not knowing. And, and, and it's like being the kid on the playground and not knowing how to play the game, right? And what was really beautiful about my work with Charles is it wasn't, it wasn't that he didn't have the skills. It's that he had never applied them other than the way he was used to applying them. Think about it, right? We all know how to interact. We know how to listen. But do we actually apply these abilities? Can you give me more specifics? I'm, I'm open. So like right now, you and I are really hearing each other. Kind of like the reason I put pauses in my book, right? We all know how to read. Do we really know how to apply what we are reading, right? Do we really know how to absorb? what we are reading. And that's why I put the pauses in. So so it's the same thing with with a Charles who is such an expert at everything and has run huge teams, et cetera, right? For him to simply slow down and start to pay attention, right? The brain goes from from right, right, just like like a wheel churning to being the absorbent sponge it is. Your brain is an absorbent sponge. Your neurological patterns are are endlessly evolvable. But guess what? You got to slow down to let that happen. 
so important. I talk about in my work, the CEO's compass, pause and reflect. So that's why it's like, oh my God, I love the pause because you're right. We skim things over. We get what we think we want out of it. Okay, I got it. We are praised for getting things done quickly. However, being able to apply it is so much different. And you actually make me reflect to a time where, hey, I was at the top of my game. I was the head of quality. I would deliver a presentation. It would be delivered so eloquently not a single error. I posed questions and answered questions, gave them all the data. And when I was done, crickets. And I was like, ooh, either one, I did a really good job or wait, did I go so fast that people couldn't even process? Maybe they didn't understand, didn't want to be stupid. Was I really looking at their body language or was I just so focused on delivering an excellent presentation versus maybe the outcome was to connect and engage and, and have conversation So there is a unique difference between top of your game and making an impact. So pause and reflect. We need to slow down in order to speed up or have a greater impact. Yeah, I call it go slow to keep going. It's so hard. (laughs) Yeah, well, a quote, you know, the quote, the cliche for a while, the buzz phrase bingo was go slow to go fast, right? And I'm really kind of sitting with, no, go slow to keep going. Right. Because if we don't slow down, then we burn out or we break things. And I think, I think I want to go there a little bit because one of the things you talk about is also the work hangover, how high performers actually stunt the engagement of others at work. So just tell us that the, the dark side of being a high performer. Oh my God. I love this. Right. I got it. I'll do it. Right. So this, this happens a couple ways. Right. One is that. The overperformers, because they're always reaching for that project or that that thing, the folks around them can't grow into it, right? And you could think of this as an alpha, non-alpha thing that the alphas are, you know, always going to jump at it. But let's face it, a football team isn't a quarterback alone, right? And you need a bench, right? Because if that quarterback hurts his ankle or gets traded, right? You need other great athletes like waiting uh, to come up. So a couple of things happen in teams. Your, your high performers can stunt the growth of everyone else because it's an easy solve, right? It's fast. Oh, they'll get it done, right? Well, are you here to just get it done right now? Or are you here to foster a team that can get it done long term and that can grow and evolve and continue to rise to greater and greater and greater challenges. So that's one thing. The other thing high performers do is they oftentimes set a tone of expectation within the group, within the team, within the organization that literally is unsustainable, right? So Joe might, because of of his or her own imposter syndrome as a high performer, Joe or Susie might actually feel compelled and paranoid and have to answer an email at 2 a.m., right? But what does that signal to the rest of the team? And I don't know about you, but I don't want one of my people burning out. I definitely don't want my whole team to fall into paranoid productivity and everyone burning out. This is a great time for who is listening to pause and reflect about what Tavis has just shared with us. Again, we celebrate the high performers, but they are also firefighters and they're always the one rescuing the day and kind of leave sometimes a mess 
<laughs> afterwards. Oh, huge mess. Oh my God. One client, we did uh, some focus groups. It was so funny. The study was uh, supposed to be on the mental well-being of the culture. What came out was like a fire hose being a firefighting of real angst. And this was among C-suite proximate, just one notch down. Everyone who reported to the C-suite participated in these conversations. And the phrase that came up that started to resonate because they were, it was kind of a focus group, but it was called the brilliant assholes. Why does our culture tolerate these brilliant assholes? Just because they're smart? Deb, you've probably seen some of the, the studies I have that show that, that psychopathic behavior is, you know, you know, tolerated and actually encouraged in a lot of corporate cultures, right? And what's interesting is you may have other people who are just as brilliant, but have not acculturated themselves to behave in such an aggressive way. So so it's really, really, really interesting to look at your team. And if you're a team leader, like look at your, back up and look at your team and ask yourself, what, what really are the dynamics happening here? What, what is my autopilot, right? Cause we all have an autopilot on my own team. Oh my gosh. I have to watch, like, who do I always turn to? Cause we can speak in shorthand and I can say half a sentence and she's got it, right? We all do this, but what does that do to the rest of the team? Yeah, it's so important. And you know, a lot of my work, even in my, my uh, leadership academy, my, my blended online course, I do talk about, you know, what do we need to do to fix ourselves? And again, there's a little emotional intelligence, getting rid of the negative mindset. You can do some things. It's about taking risks. But then I also talk about the human interaction because we too, first of all, have to understand the people. We can't necessarily change the people, but we can change how we interact with them. Sometimes we don't teach that. We only get slapped on the hand. You shouldn't have done that. And then you cower in a corner, never knowing exactly then what kind of feedback can you respond to to have a better interaction in the future. Corporations, unfortunately, and I'm going to let you say it, just do a disservice to the creative process in developing individuals. We'll just hire more pie performers and, oh, that person's quiet over there. They're difficult. But again, we just need to spend more time investing in bringing out the best in everybody and understanding what might even hold them back. So this has been amazing, but I do want to just touch on one more thing, because I think this really goes back to the essence of your book. You talk about just the segregation of being good enough versus radically successful, and people so much settle in just one versus the other. Maybe paint a picture for us, because again, I want people to engage with your book. What does it look like from a person that was simply good enough, check the boxes, to what did you see that person like when they were radically successful? What did it feel like? What did that look like? So that people listening can say, oh, I want to be that. How can I learn more? How can I get there? What does that look like? Oh, yeah. So I came up with the concept of radical success because I realized that society's idea of success actually doesn't include being true to yourself. Right. It's, it's more about the money and the title and the social gravitas and all of that. And a couple of things I've seen people do experience. I've seen people go from kind of dialing it in, right? I've seen very, very high performers get so good at their job 
have enough uh, promotions and enough accolades that they realize that none of it is really going to set their heart on fire. And they reach a moment where they're like, well, uh, uh, okay, if I get that next promotion, is that going to do it? They've changed jobs. They've gone to the startup, you know, blah, 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 blah. What I've seen, and in that moment, there's, there's almost, it's almost like an egg on a wall, right? That it's going to go one way or that. In that moment, some people will blow up their lives. Some people will completely blow up their lives, whether it's to sabotage them something at work, to sabotage them something in their personal life. And it's simply frustration, right? I really see it as frustration. What I've seen people do is I've seen people back up from that precipice and ask themselves, okay, if I can nail so much of what the world says is important, if I've got all these skills that I can do that, then how do I use all those skills to actually be true to myself? I've seen people go from being about to leave their jobs at some of the most powerful companies on the planet to actually carving a path in which they are able to stay because they know how to be true to themselves while they are there. And they go on to contribute even more because they're not just going along with what everyone else says. They're suddenly starting to step up even more vocally, creatively with greater contribution and attentive and reward. So I've seen people completely take a situation where literally they were about to throw everything down the toilet and reassess and say, it's not the situation that's the problem. It's me and my relationship to me. If I may just ask one more question, and we're going to bring this to a close because this is a great conversation. People will have those moments. They will say, I have found what my true self is, and I'm going to start showing up that way. I'm going to speak up, state my mind. I'm going to propose alternate thoughts of my process and what could be done better. And for the individual that has found their true self, wants to continue to go because it feels good because many people acknowledge it. But the society, the culture, the environment, the ecosystem that they're in doesn't appreciate it. Well, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to continue here. Best advice you can give that person that is at that point, they found their true self and the environment doesn't support it anymore. Your thoughts? My thoughts are, transparently speaking, you have two choices, right? You baby step it and agitate in an iterative way. Or you jump ship. Yeah. But but the reason I don't think it's de facto, oh, you have to leave, is because everyone's appetite for risk is different. And I don't think leaving is always the answer. In fact, I kind of wish more of us would stay and be vocal, especially in the C-suite. I want us to stay and be vocal. I want us to stay and agitate because that is how the world changes. It doesn't change by you bailing. Beautiful. This has been a fantastic interview. You know, for everybody listening, this is a Friday afternoon. I was ready to go for the weekend. I think we were both feeling like, okay, we're going to do this interview. But you know what? I am so energized by this. I am grateful. Any last thoughts or resources or how people can connect with your work? The book is fantastic. 
Your work is fantastic. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Oh, thank you so much, Deb. I love to communicate with people. So if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on our website at balanceintegration.com. It's a company I founded 20 years ago. Anyway, um, (laughs) I also have a gift uh, for you guys. It's a distillation of happiness habits. Now, I'm not super into tips. And I say that transparently. I feel like we read a tip and we go, yeah, I already do that. Or we go, no, 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 it's not for me. Like it's more, it's more like we read tips as if we're judging them, right? Is that right? Is it not right? Is it true? Is it not true? Right. But I did spend some time thinking about what are ways of thinking and what are habits I've seen folks who are high performers and happy do. And so I distilled them into eight ideas for you to play around with. It's not like, okay, touch your toes five times and say hallelujah. It's not that kind of tip. It's not uh, drink more water. Although I do think drinking more water is always a good idea. But but it's really thoughts uh, for you to play with that can really shift how you experience the success that you're already enjoying. So I'd love to offer that. And you can get that. I'm going to send it to Deb and she can post it. All right. We'll get that in the show notes. Tevis, you have been amazing. I'm energized. I feel great about the work that I do. I'm grateful to know you and wish you continued success. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deb. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.